What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, we'd like to welcome you to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We won't be taking your phone calls today, but if you would like to be part of a future mailbag edition, you can send us an email. That email address, if you want to file it away, is ctc at ewtn.com. That's ctc at EWTN.com. And you can always give us a phone call after 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can leave a question on our listener comment line. That number is 833-288-3986. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Michael McCall behind the glass spinning the dials, producing the program, sitting in for Charles Beery. And sitting in for Dr. David Anders is, well, it's Dr. David Anders. Jack, how are you today? You're the only uh, solid, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, anchoring force in the room today. Well, and and hopefully the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, there you go. That's a good point. <laughs> Touche, as I... As I gave you some Holy Spirit grief a little bit earlier, you... <laughs> you Back re- at you, Jack. There Back you go. You. <laughs> uh, right out of the gate here, we've got Matthew in Tulsa, and he says, Dr. Anders, could you please tell me why someone should be Catholic and not Anglican? On the surface, it seems like Anglicanism has many of the same qualities as Catholicism, such as having priests and bishops and believing in the real presence. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, of course, as a Catholic, I believe that Anglican people can come to holiness and salvation. Uh, And the fact that the Catholic Church is a church founded by Jesus uh, doesn't mean that that people outside the Catholic Church have no no hope of redemption or no access to grace. That's not the Catholic position. But it is the Catholic position that Christ intended for there to be a church. He he stated this explicitly when he said to St. Peter, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And he didn't talk about multiple churches or different denominations, but a, but a singular institution, one organization, uh, that would be Catholic in the sense of universal throughout all the world, uh, and the authorized individuals that he appointed, namely the apostles and their successors, the bishops, had the charge of teaching the faith, everything he commanded to the whole world. And, and that, that note of unity is an important part of what Christ intended. John 17, of course, praying that the, all those who believe in him might be one. Uh, and we're talking about a visible unity, not some sort of ethereal spiritual affinity in their hearts, but a, a unity that would be visible to the world so that the world would know that Christ came from the Father. And, uh, and of course, when we look at the pattern of ancient church and the, and the book of Acts and the epistles, uh, it has this universal and visible character such that say, the Council of Jerusalem, can can lay down a ruling that is obligatory for the entire Christian world, right? That's what Catholic means. And so uh, there's a motive to be part of that Catholicity, part of that unity. Um, and uh, and if you're not a part of it, at some level, it's you, you're, you are ascribing to the idea that it is I and my conscience that is the, that is the final arbiter of truth. 
um, and I'm going to uh, essentially engage in what a friend of mine, Brian Cross, calls ecclesial consumerism, that I'll find the denomination or the church or the tradition that, that affords with my sense of or my aesthetic or my theological preferences or whatever, and that's a recipe for disorder and disunity. Now, if you want to really get down in the weeds from the Catholic point of view, uh, the, the Anglican Church does not actually have valid apostolic orders, uh, nor do they have a valid Eucharist. They don't have valid most, well, they don't have valid Eucharist, they don't have valid ordination, they don't have valid confirmation. Uh, they would have valid baptisms because any Trinitarian baptism can potentially be valid. Um, and so while, while the appearances are there, to be sure, of, of Episcopal authority and sacramental economy, um, from a Catholic point of view, the, 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 the substance is not there. And quite literally, the substance of Christ's body and blood is not there. Now, why, why do we say that? Well, the Anglican Church could have been like the Orthodox, in a sense. Well, there would be some serious differences, but they could have been like them in this one respect. It would have been theoretically possible for Henry VIII to pull out of unity with the Catholic faith, with the Catholic Church, and to have retained valid bishops and valid priests and a valid Eucharist. And he did for a while. Now, in that respect, there are other historical reasons why that the, the analogy to Orthodoxy is bad, but... In that respect, he could have been separated from unity with the Pope and still have had valid orders. Uh, and he did for a while, but when Henry VIII died, his son Edward came to the throne, and he was a very young man when he came to the throne, and he had advisors that were heavily influenced by Calvinism, continental Calvinism, and they persuaded him to change the rite of ordination in the Anglican Church, the so-called Edwardine Ordinal. And in that change, they vitiated the rite. They, they fundamentally altered the, the theology of priesthood and sacrament, such that anyone ordained under the Edward IX ordinal and from that point forward did not have valid priesthood or valid episcopacy. And so, I mean, the Catholic Church has ruled on this definitively and infallibly that the priestly orders of the Anglican Church are null and void. And that's why if an Episcopal priest becomes a Catholic and wants to become a Catholic priest, he will be absolutely ordained, meaning his ordination in the Anglican Church is not regarded as a valid ordination. And he is he submits to ordination as a Catholic priest. Not the same. Not the same. If a if a if an Orthodox priest were to be accepted into the Catholic Church and want to function as a priest in the Catholic Church, he would not have to undergo the rite of ordination again because the Catholic Church regards his orders as valid. Anglican orders are not valid. So any number of reasons. Any number and of probably reasons. probably a few that you didn't even and cover. And quite a few I didn't mention. <laughs> yeah, very good. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. So we won't be taking your phone calls today, but if you would like to be part of a future mailbag edition, we would love for you to partake, partake of that. And you can do so by simply sending us an email. That email address is... CTC, just like the first letters of called to communion, CTC at EWTN.com. And uh, we will get that into the appropriate folder, and you may hear your question come up on a future mailbag edition. Also, if you'd like to leave a listener comment line call, you can call our regular phone number, 833-288-EWTN, after 4 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can leave your listener comment line question for Dr. David Andrews. This is, again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews.
Once again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. You know, holiday tea towels make great gifts, and EWTN Religious Catalog has beautiful designs from which to choose. You can mix, mix rather and match designs of the vintage nativity, a trumpeting angel, the three wise men, or as my father would always call them, the three wise guys. Three wise guys. Uh, peace on earth, joy, faith, and love in the shape of a tree, or the star of David. These are perfect on their own, or add a home-baked treat for a special touch, maybe a little miniature pecan pie, just for Dr. David Anders. Purchase two or more towels and receive a $1 discount per towel. They're available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. David, Noel, it's either Noel or Noel, has written us uh, this email that says, Hi, Dr. Anders. I would like your reaction on this. Jesus is the only way things that won't get you to heaven. Number one, good works. Number two, baptism. Number three, church attendance. Number four, charity. Number five, feeding the poor. Number six, the rosary. Number seven, communion. Number eight, your praying parents. (laughs) Number nine, positive thinking. Number ten, being a good person. God's being a good person. God's reward things that will get you into heaven. Jesus Christ. Yeah, thanks. So, I agree with some of your theses, not all of them. And And I don't think this is Noel's theses. I think he's asking for your comment on what he saw okay okay sure 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 all right um uh, i would agree that jesus christ is the way the only way and that's the catholic position but the way in which he is the way the manner in which christ saves you is in fact through two of the things that you listed um i would agree that baptism and the prayers of your parents and all of these things will are not sufficient to get you to heaven. Charity and being a good person, however, is the whole point of the Christian faith. And so what the Catholic faith teaches is that Jesus Christ came. He was incarnate. He lived. He died. He rose again. The gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts so that we can come to charity so that the love of God is poured into our lives, and we become loving people as Jesus was. And that's our definition of a good person. If you lack charity, you might, you might play the best Sudoku game on the planet, and you're not a good person. A good person, from the Catholic reckoning, is a person who is made perfect in charity. And because the Christian can be made perfect in charity, the Lord can say to him on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, that, that runs flat contrary to the thesis of, of classical Protestantism. Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on the Galatians letter that God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. That's a quote from Luther. And that is, a, that is the direct confutation of the Catholic position. The Catholic position is God absolutely smiles on a man for his charity and virtues, but that if you have charity and virtue— it has come to you through the gift of grace, 
grace we receive by faith in Jesus. So if you ask a Catholic, are you saved by faith? Absolutely we're saved by faith. But how? Through the medium of faith, the grace of Christ is poured into our lives, making us charitable, making us good people, so that we genuinely obey, as Paul says, the righteous requirements of the law. Now, these other things that you listed, good works, baptism, uh, uh, communion, the prayers of your parents, all of those are means to an end. The means is charity. They're, 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 they're instruments, they're tools that the Lord uses to bring us to the life of charity. St. Augustine once wrote in On Christian Doctrine, he said, uh, the whole dispensation of our faith, the entire material world, uh, exists for one reason, and that is to bring us to, to the love of an object greater than which nothing can be conceived, namely to God himself. The whole purpose of the whole of Christian faith is to move us to be charitable. He says we ought to treat the faith, treat the world like a road or a chariot as a means to an end. And the end, of course, is to be united with God in charity. Again, we're not taking any phone calls today. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Tanner in Ohio writes in, Hello, Dr. Anders. I have a Protestant friend who's very interested in the literal interpretation of the Bible. He's very skeptical in geology and astronomy and thinks scientists are misinterpreting or clueless. How can I explain how we view the literal reading? How do we know what is literal and what isn't? If 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 the creation story weren't literally true, what would this mean for how we interpret original sin? Thank you. Um, all right, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So what do we mean by literal, and what is the right way to interpret texts? Um, you know, if I say to my wife, um, I don't say this to my wife, but I could say it. If I said, you know, you, uh, you know, you overspent the credit card this month, and so I am mad as a snake. Well, I don't say that to my wife, but but what if I did? I could. I'm just mad as a snake. Well, how how mad are snakes? <laughs> I was going to say I, I don't know that we can interpret snakes' emotions. You know, I mean that that's them. an expression my mother used to use when I was growing up. <laughs> just mad as a snake. You know, um, should I should I take that sentence to you know to mean that either I'm not mad at all because you know snakes aren't particularly irascible, or I literally have the emotions of a reptile? No. No, that's not how we would take the term, right? We'd, we're not taking it in its literal denotative sense. And and that's just that's just the good, that's just the proper use of language. And so when the Catholic Church talks about the literal sense of the Bible, it doesn't mean the, the taken out of context, straightforward, denotative sense of the words. It means the meaning of the text that is discernible through exegesis. It means... The, the, the intention that the sacred author had when he composed the text. And to discern those things, we have to attend to things like what is the genre of literature? When the psalmist says, the trees of the field shall clap their hands, this is obviously poetry, and it uses metaphor and figure. So the literal sense of the text is not to infer that trees have appendages like hands. What is the genre of the book of Genesis? Now, I'm going to use a scary word, but let me define it, okay? Myth! Myth! It's the same genre of literature that you would find in something like the Enuma Elish from the Babylonian creation story, or the Epic of Gilgamesh. It is a narrative that, that describes uh, cosmological events 
in order to situate the human person in his or her relationship to the divine and to one another. That's what myths do. It doesn't mean it's untrue, but it, the, the nature of the truth that's conveyed is not the nature of the truth that you would get out of a geology textbook or an anthropology textbook or a biology textbook or an astronomy textbook, for that matter. Um, it, it has to do, it's a, it's a, it is a story about human origins. It's meant to situate us in our relationship to God and neighbor. Uh, an excellent illustration of the way the Catholic Church engages the text of Genesis would be Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. It's an extended commentary. It went on for about two years. He gave audiences every Wednesday on this. Uh, about the meaning of the human person, his sexuality, his relationship to his own body, to that of his or her spouse, uh, and to God himself, that can be discerned through the language of the text. And he says explicitly, the point of these narratives is not to give us a blow-by-blow account of man's theological prehistory, but rather his existential situation in the world. So it's profoundly true, but it's not true at the level of geology or astronomy. That's to misread the text, it's to misread the intention of the sacred writer. And if you try to take it in, in a strictly denotative kind of literalism, the way a fundamentalist would, um, you, you run into obvious difficulties. And this is not something that we had to wait for modern geology to figure out. I mean, ancient Christians knew this as well. Origen, one of the great biblical commentators of the second and third century, commenting on Genesis, said, well, it obviously can't be true at that level because it says that God walked in the garden and he doesn't have feet. Right, so I mean, you, you, it's not to be read that way. Saint Augustine of Hippo, uh, reading the Book of Genesis, and you may think this is a stretch, but I actually think there's more plausibility to it than you might imagine. Reads the Genesis narrative as an allegory for the creation of the church, and you might say, Anders, how how on earth could you read the creation account as an allegory for the church? That's what Augustine does. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, the literal sense for the Catholic is the one discernible by exegesis. And when you look to what modern exegetes say about the book of Genesis, uh, many of them argue that it is written from the point of view, or from the, from the historical perspective of someone living in the Davidic court who is reading Israel's prehistory precisely as a, a, a kind of apology for Davidic monarchy. And of course, in the New Testament, the Davidic monarchy is a type of the person of Jesus in the kingdom of God. And so you can actually make a strong theological and exegetical argument that Augustine's allegory is not that implausible, even though it might seem so on the face taken at that denotative level. Now, I'm not saying you have to hold Augustine's position or you have to hold the modern critical position, but I'm saying that there's a range of, of hermeneutical options that have always been employed by Catholics of different stripes down through the centuries to read the text creatively for the ultimate purpose of being united in, in character and will uh, an affinity with the person of Jesus. And so however you read the Bible, the Catholic position is the, the ultimate hermeneutical criteria for Scripture interpretation is read the Bible to acquire the mind of Christ. Read the Bible to bring your mind in, into the accord with the mind of the Church. Read the Bible in order to be transformed in your character. And the Bible is completely authoritative, inspired, and inerrant when understood in that way, that it is, that it is it's not sufficient as a rule of faith, but it is sufficient to bring us into contact with the person of Jesus Christ, to the teaching of his church, to the reality, the incarnate presence of Christ in history, in the persons of his ministers, and the sacraments, and the tradition of the church, to transform us in the world. That's the point of Holy Scripture. If you take it like a geology textbook, if you take it like an astronomy textbook, you do violence to your own reason, and you make life in civil society nearly impossible.
And that's the way I grew up. I grew up in a fundamentalist cult that viewed the Bible literally true in its denotative sense. And it led to a very, very anti-society, uh, anti, anti-reason, anti-science um, the sectarian point of view that was quite frankly contrary to human flourishing. And it led to an, an, an incredible amount of anxiety and hubris uh, because we considered ourselves to have, you know, the lock on truth and everybody that would disagree with us was just, you know, Satan's minion or something, not realizing that the joke was on us. And the Catholic faith has always had the position that faith and reason cannot in principle conflict. And if you discern that something is true reasonably, then it's true. It's true. And so you have to bring your understanding of the faith and the science into harmonization, and you can't predetermine the outcome of that harmonization by sticking your head in the sand. Dear Dr. Anders, Teresa writes, Thank you for your program. I enjoy watching your show on EWTN television. I like employing the Oran's posture when I pray the Our Father at home or during Mass. I have a feeling in the palms of my hands that my slash our prayer is being lifted up to God. Is the Oran's position still appropriate for the congregation at Mass? Yeah, well, that's not what the rubrics indicate for us to do. Right. Um, that's the posture that the priest takes. Uh, there's nothing in the rubrics that says that, that, that the lay people are to do that. And, and you know, the, the general position is we ought not to confuse the role of priest and laity in the celebration of the liturgy. Now, if you want to take any position that you want in your private prayer at home, I think that's unobjectionable. Um, but, but we want to pray with the mind of the Church when we're in public liturgy. And we always want to pray with the mind of the Church, but we want to follow the, the rubrics of the Mass when we're gathered together in community. But, you know, I mean, I've, I pray lying down in my bed. I pray on the treadmill. You know, you can, you can pray taking a shower. I mean, there's you know, all kinds of postures are consistent with Christian prayer. Uh, but, there is, there, but there are prescribed postures for the liturgy. Um. Gerald writes in, uh, wouldn't relying on changing the color of smoke when selecting a new pope be considered superstitious? The church is against superstition, question mark. And how many centuries has this custom or tradition been in place? Did it start with St. Peter? What is the reasoning the church uses this custom? Yeah, well, it wouldn't be superstitious. It would only be superstitious if you had the view that getting the color of the smoke white right was necessary for the validity of the election, right? That might be superstitious, but that's not the meaning of the act. Um, where the convention began, I have no idea. Uh, I'm sure it's a medieval convention. It's probably, I mean, it, it couldn't date further back than the College of Cardinals, I don't imagine. Um, don't actually know the history behind it. But superstition is when is when we treat... Um, arbitrary signs and conventions uh, and rights as if, as if they had some sort of independent power to compel the unseen world to do our bidding. And, and clearly that's not what's in view in this, in this tradition. That's like not to exonerate Catholics of all superstitions. I mean, most people are given to some kind of superstition someplace in their life, you know. Um, and it's, a, it's sort of inbuilt into human prejudice that we tend to look for patterns in places where they don't exist. It's what leads to gambling addiction, among other things, you know. Uh, we always have to extirpate these things from our personality, which is why the Catechism teaches that we always have to be on guard for the risk of superstition and try to purge it from our consciousness whenever we notice it. Uh, but this would not be an example of superstition. Yeah, it doesn't make—the question doesn't make a ton of sense to me because it's sort of—it's it's not, it's not as though we just arbitrarily— 
light a match and whatever color the smoke is tells us whether or not we have a pope. Right, right, right. It's like raising a flag to let the people know that you've elected a pope. That's exactly right. That's right. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, ctc at EWTN.com. That's ctc at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. We have an email from Judy, and she says, Would you please comment? (laughs) I I didn't look down before we got to the (laughs) thing. Would you please comment on the Latin Mass? I was raised in the Latin Mass, and I also love the Mass as it is today. Yes, we used a missile that had Latin on one side and English on the other, but I like just hearing it in English. Isn't the main reason for Mass to glorify God and receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Not many of us know Latin. Our priest does Holy Hour with two songs in Latin. I sing them, but they are just sounds for me. I know there are people who love the Latin Mass and will drive for three hours one way to attend one, but don't make me feel like I'm not as good because I want to hear it in English. In addition, why might our priest refuse to use the Luminous Mysteries? Is there something wrong with them that people object to? Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, the Sacred Scripture gives one criterion for authentic liturgy. St. Paul offers this in, the, in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, uh, you know, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I have knowledge and can fathom all mysteries— and, you know, if he lived today, he might have said, if I, if I follow the rubrics perfectly according to whatever my ideological preferences are, but I have not charity, then I'm nothing. <coughs> charity is the whole show. Charity is the entire point. Um, Pope Pius XII, who, of course, lived before the council, wrote a beautiful encyclical on the liturgy called Mediator Dei. And, of course, he was writing about the Mass of the Ages. He was writing about the Tridentine Mass because it's the only Mass that he knew at that point in time. And he said, you know, in the sacrifice of the Mass, there are two sacrifices that we can talk about. We can talk about the outward sacrifice of the rite. The rite itself is objectively a sacrifice. But then he said there is the inward sacrifice, the sacrifice of oneself, the donation of one's heart to God that is meant to be evoked in the Mass. And of the two, Pope Pius XII writes, by far the more important is the inward sacrifice. Paul says offering our bodies in living sacrifice is our spiritual act of worship. And so the, the, the most important liturgical question we can ask is, how can I do that? How can I unite myself to the sacrifice of Christ? How can I make this interior donation that is true and proper worship where the end is charity? That can happen in the traditional Latin Mass. That can happen in the New Order of the Mass. That can happen in the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. That can happen in, in any valid Mass. And, and, uh, and to take our eyes off of that is to, is, to really, is to really miss the point of the Mass. Now, there are many people—I'm sitting with one right now, actually—who who love the beauty of the traditional Latin Mass— 
and and the, they appreciate the theological depth, say, of the preface to the canon of the Mass or other passages in the text that are quite beautiful and theologically specific and deep and rich. And if you listen to the proponents of, of the traditional Mass, they will often say, while acknowledging the validity of the Novus Ordo, that they find uh, the depth of the theology or the or the exhortations to holiness watered down in comparison. You might you might get that kind of answer from some. And so for them, it is a personal preference. It is a devotional preference uh, to worship in their preferred uh, form of the Mass. There are others, however, who are more ideologically extreme that take the position that the that the that the text of the Mass itself is either intrinsically more efficacious than the Novus Ordo, meaning that your options for holiness are just greater in one versus the other, or even worse, they might claim that the ordinary form of the Mass is not valid. Uh, and that's a, that's a terrible position to take, right? Either one of those has veered from, you know, a motive that is essentially aesthetic and devotional to one that is ideological and divisive. And so we have to distinguish, in my view, between people who have uh, a love of tradition, distinguish those from what we might call traditionalists, those that have an ideology about the meaning of Catholic history and set themselves against the common practice of the Church or the mind of the Holy Father. And so, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, some months ago the Holy Father uh, issued a motu proprio that restricted the use of the Latin Mass— and his reason that he gave was that second group, not the first kind, not the kind who love the Mass and find it appropriate for their own spirituality, but those who used it as a kind of ideological wedge to divide themselves from the Holy Father and from the larger Church. And so uh, the one is okay, the other is not okay. Um, why certain priests might refrain from saying the Luminous Mysteries— to my judgment, it would be that second kind, is those that have an ideological axe to grind and think that they know better than the mind of the Church or the mind of the Holy Father. Uh, you know, the rosary is not even part of the Church's liturgy. It's a private devotion. It's a, it's a classical one. I mean, it's a very tried and true devotion. It's beloved by many Catholics in the Latin Church, but it's not part of the Church's liturgy. And, and so, you know, the attitude that I must pray the rosary in exactly the way my grandmother prayed it, or somehow it doesn't take— now, that's actually a superstitious kind of judgment. I mean, most of the great spiritual writers in history, even those who wrote long before the Council, would tell you, if you're praying the rosary, and you find that, you know, in the middle of the first decade, you sort of slide off in a kind of wordless wonder of adoration and love of God, go with that. Put the rosary down and go with that wordless, uh, enamored uh, resting in the presence of God. That's the ultimate purpose of prayer anyway not to make sure that you hit every single Hail Mary on the beads. Uh, and so I really think it's to, it's to misconstrue the point of prayer uh, when you insist on these kinds of nitpicky differences. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. If you'd like to leave a message on our listener comment line, call that number after 4 p.m. Eastern Time, or you can send us an email. That email address is ctc at EWTN.com, a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Um, Mary writes in, Hello, Dr. Anders. I thought as a Catholic in the Bible, a passage that says we shall praise God from the rising of the sun until its setting is referring to the Mass. 
and that is and that it is the mass that is going on all over the world at all times. Is that what the passage means? Also, how would I explain to a non-Catholic? My friend told me this just meant that people are praising God all over the planet all the time. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So uh, the, the, the prophet Malachi prophesies a time when the Gentiles will offer God a pure offering. And the fathers of the church universally interpreted Malachi's prophecy to refer to the Holy Mass of the Sacred Liturgy. And they said this is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. Uh, when we when we see the Eucharist being offered on altars all over the world, you know, from morning till night, obviously this fulfills Ma- Malachi's expectation. If we if we were to go back and if we could get in a time machine and travel back and meet Malachi, and ask him, Malachi, are you talking about the Mass? My sense is Malachi would have said, do what? Right? The, the, the St. Peter's epistle tells us that when the pro- prophets spoke about the things to come, that they didn't know the specifics of what they were prophesying. They have an intimation from the Holy Spirit about something that they themselves don't understand. And so the, the fulfillment they're just, they're of just reading the memorandum. They're just reading the memorandum, exactly. So, so I think if you, if you applied sort of like the strict standards of exegesis, and you said, did the psalmist intend the Mass— Probably not. But does that make it illegitimate to see the Mass as the fulfillment of that? No, it doesn't make it illegitimate. Because we we can look backwards from the point of view of the New Testament, from the point of view of the Church, from the point of view of the liturgy, and we can see things in the Old Testament that the Old Testament authors themselves may have had only the most shadowy intimations of. Got an email here from James, and he says, Did Mary not give birth to our life, our sweetness, and our hope, namely Jesus? She gave, birth, she gave life and birth to him, the incarnate word, who made her, and she remains eternally a perpetual virgin. Without true devotion to Mary, you will never comprehend the mystery of Mary. The words used in the Salve Regina are not a lullaby, and certainly not the teaching of the Catholic Church. Without Mary... We would not have our life, our sweetness, and our hope, Jesus. She gave flesh and blood to him who made her, her Redeemer, and ours for that very reason. He chose her from all eternity to be his mother. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. I'm not hearing a question here. Yeah, there, there isn't one. Right. It's, I'm listening to a sermon. Right? We'll, talk to, we'll talk to our producer man, <laughs> Charles Beery, about how this wandered its way into the, uh, into the folder. And um, I, think that, I think that I agree with part of it, and I would have to think a little bit about part of it. Yeah, there was a lot of text there for me to give a blanket yes or no to. Yeah, yeah very good. Thanks, James. Um, <laughs> we've, got a, we've got an anonymous. It couldn't be any worse, could it? Okay. We've got an anonymous email now uh, who says... Says, Dr. Anderson. (laughs) Okay, that's a good start. (laughs) The Queen of Heaven is mentioned in Jeremiah 44, 7 through 10 as a strange God. As As a Catholic, I understand the only Queen of Heaven is the Blessed Virgin Mary, Our Lady, who is mentioned in Revelation 12. Please comment on the difference. Um, so different referent, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting next to Jack right now. He is not every Jack in the world. Right, there are other people named Jack, and and so the reference to the Queen of Heaven in the Old Testament to is the delight of all the other Jacks right? <laughs> is a is is a reference to a pagan deity, but that's not who we're talking about when we talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
we're talking about the real queen of heaven, not the pagan pretender. Eight three. Well, I'm not. I, I'm. I'm. I'm a creature of habit. The, the phone number is eight three three two eight eight EWTN. But we're not taking your phone calls today. There but if go. you'd like to call that number, well, write it down and call us when we're on the air. Four p.m. Eastern time. Yeah. Then we would love to, to have you leave a listener comment line call for us. David writes in: If God created man. He knows man is imperfect and created a little lower than the angels. Why then does man need a savior in Jesus Christ? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I, I think that you just said that God created man imperfect. I think that's what you just said. And that's not the Catholic doctrine. So um, okay, I said, if God created man, he knows man is imperfect. Okay, and okay. created a little lower. Yeah. Okay. So, if if the implication is that God made man defective, that would not be the Catholic position. That Adam and Eve were created; uh, they had the gift of they had the preternatural gift of integrity. They had infused knowledge. They had a relationship with God by grace. They had all that they needed to remain in a kind of perfect spiritual state, and they fell. That's the Catholic position. And so, redemption in Christ restores in us what we lost in Adam, namely to be in the likeness and image of God. Dr. Anders writes, Katie, I am an organist, and occasionally I play organ at a Saturday evening mass (coughs) and two Sunday morning masses. I was wondering if I am allowed to receive Holy Communion at all three masses (coughs) or not, since they are all the same liturgy. I heard before, but you can only receive twice in one day, so I didn't know if that applied to twice in the same liturgy, although it is on two different days. Um, yep, that is a down-in-the-weeds liturgy law question, and any answer that I give would be an intuition. And to be honest with you, I, uh, I, have, I, have, I have diverse intuitions here. I have the intuition that says it's the same Mass on the same liturgical day, Right. Uh, and then I have another intuition that says it's two different days. And I don't know which intuition is correct. And because I'm not a canonist or a priest and don't have to make these calls on a daily basis, I don't actually know. Jack, do you know? I don't know. My understanding, and I'm and I'm basing off of what I hear Father Wade Menezes repeatedly say on Open Line Tuesday when this question comes up, and the only thing that is coming into my head is that you you may receive twice in the same day. That's right. But the second, the only real requirement that I'm aware of, other than being in a state of grace, is that the second time you receive, it has to be in the context of a Mass. That's right. But her question is, is this actually three times in a day? Yeah. Like, liturgically, from the point of view of liturgical law, is the Saturday evening Mass the same as receiving Mass on, on, on Sunday morning? And, and I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I think to discuss it any further would just kill time. Almost mandate legalism. That's right. (laughs) So we'll wait for Father Wade. That's a good idea. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I'm going to make a note of that because our celebrity producer today is the producer of Open Line. So we can make a note to ask Father Wade that question on Tuesday, um, which will be before this mailbag airs. (laughs) 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 This is a metaphysical train wreck right now, Dr. Anders. Let me tell you about a great opportunity. Um, you know, there's a saying, and maybe you know it. I can't quote it as uh, as quickly as my wife can. She quotes it all the time. 
but it's uh, something that a saint once said that's something to the effect of um, our departed relatives are not absent from us, only invisible to us. There you go. And uh, that's why, and the reason I mention that is because we have a wonderful opportunity on Saturday mornings at 1 a.m. Eastern Time where you can still mine the depths of the wisdom of Father Benedict Rochelle of Happy Memory. Uh, who just had so many treasures that our Lord entrusted to him to share with us. And you can hear some of those uh, on the program we call The Wisdom of Father Groeschel, Saturday mornings, 1 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. John writes in, Hello, Dr. Anders. I've heard how you respond to questions from callers about devotions, that they are simply tools that help us grow in holiness, and we should pick and choose which, if any, works best for us. How then do you explain devotions that have certain promises attached, such as First Fridays, First Saturdays, or Mercy Sunday? Aren't those devotionals in a different category? I learn so much from your show and listen almost every day. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So all of those promises are the products of private revelation, meaning they're not the public revelation of the Church, and therefore they cannot be imposed as a kind of law on the entire Christian faithful. They can be presented to the conscience for consideration. And uh, any of those promises, and all of them, must be read uh, as subordinate to the dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church. And so, let me give you an example. You, you will occasionally hear promises attached to the rosary or some devotion that basically says, you know, if you do this, you will be saved, or, or words to that effect. And if you take that to mean that all I have to do to be saved is the mechanical repetition of an act, of a devotional act, then that would be to read the promise in a way that was contrary to the dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church that says we must have charity in our hearts to be saved. Um, if you read that promise as a, as a guarantee of perseverance in the faith, so, okay, well, I grant you, Anders, you got to have charity, but hey, by doing this devotion, I will be guaranteed to die with charity in my heart. Again, you would be contradicting the teaching, the, the dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church, because the Council of Trent teaches infallibly that we can't know that we have the gift of perseverance. We can pray for it, we can ask for it, but that no one knows antecedently that he will be saved. So some of the promises that you get in private revelations about devotions have been taken, in my judgment, in ways that contradict the dogmatic teaching of the Church. So what do we do about that? Well, like I began to say, because these are private devotions and they're private revelations, they can be presented to the conscience, and they must be submitted to the magisterium of the Church and to the dogmatic teaching of the Church. So that leads me back to where I began, which is that there's nothing wrong with the promises and there's nothing wrong with the devotions, but, they, but their utility ultimately must be and can only be, uh, do they help us on the path to charity and holiness? And that, that's the way, that, that is the singular, singular criterion for every form of prayer, for every liturgical activity, for every practice, for every good work. Do they advance us on the path to charity and holiness? If they don't, if they deflect us to some other end, then they become superstitious. Now, here's the, here's the little secret on the Catholic faith. Anything we do as Catholics has the capacity to be taken in a superstitious mode. And anything we do as a Catholic has the capacity to be taken in a gracious mode. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2111, 
says that even the sacraments themselves can be taken superstitiously. So if I approach the Eucharist, for example, and I say, hey, just by going to the Eucharist, I am guaranteeing that I'll go to heaven when I die. And I don't actually have to attend to things like contrition and humility, faith, hope, or charity. Then that's to take the Eucharist in a superstitious way. Some people do that to their hurt and to others. Um, but I can take any devotion uh, that's a permitted, of course, and if I take it in a mode to say, how can I do this thing to be conformed more deeply in my heart to the heart of Jesus, to bring my will into alignment with the will of Christ, then, then any kind of prayer, any sort of vocal prayer that I may articulate becomes a path to contemplation. Teresa of Avila writes about this exact thing in, in her interior castle. Uh, she speaks about a sister that was in her convent who lacked the capacity for interior silent prayer. She, 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 she couldn't follow Teresa's instructions for how to do contemplative prayer. And yet, Teresa tells her, that this woman prayed her vocal prayers, and that means the devotions, with such depth, with such charity, with such faith, that she, Teresa of Avila, doctor of the church and saint, was envious of this woman's vocal prayers. That's what I'm talking about. That, that's the way to do devotions. That's the way to do the liturgy. Everything we do, do for the glory of God and the love of souls and the love of neighbor. If you take that disposition, Augustine says, love and do what you will. You can literally do no wrong. But anything taken superstitiously and you can do nothing right. Uh, John writes in, Dr. Anders, I understand that Catholics believe that God dwells in the consecrated hosts stored in a Catholic tabernacle and or in a monstrance. How can that be, given Acts chapter 7, verses 48 to 50, the Bible explicitly teaches that God does not dwell in man-made structures? Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. So what the question confuses... Uh, or is ignorant of, is that in Scripture and in the Catholic faith, we distinguish modes of the divine presence. Fantastic book on this question that I highly recommend, easily accessible, very readable, uh, by an Irish Dominican priest named Anselm Moynihan, and the title of the book is simply The Presence of God. And he details the various modes of the divine presence. Uh, the mode that you reference would be the mode of divine immensity, what do we mean by immensity? Uh, immensity means not just that God is everywhere, right? Uh, it's more powerful than that. See, you know, in a, in a material sense, we could say that, like, you know, on planet Earth, air is everywhere. But air is everywhere in such a fashion that there'd be more air, say, in this radio studio than in my suitcase, right? That's not the way that God is everywhere. There is not more of God in an elephant than a mouse, God is everywhere insofar as the totality of God's essence is present to every particle of created being, because it is only in and through the divine essence that things have their being. This is what Paul writes about in Acts, or he preaches about in Acts, when he says, in, in, in him we live and move and have our being. That all of God is present in one singular instantaneous moment to every particle of space and time from eternity past to eternity future. But that is an incredibly powerful mode of 
presence, but it's one that can't be constrained within temporal or spatial boundaries. Again, like there's not more of God in, a, in, in this room than there is in a suitcase. Um, so it would be wrong to say that God isn't in the tree or in the mouse or in the elephant or in this room or in my suitcase, because then there would be something apart from God. There would be something that existed, you know, with, with God sort of held at, at bay, as it were. When the psalmist says, if I ascend to the heights, you are there. If I go down to the depths, you are there. There's literally nowhere we can go to escape the presence of God, understood as divine immensity. Now, other modes of divine presence. Um, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The mode of presence that exists in the incarnation. This is the assumption of a human nature by the second person of the Trinity. That is not ubiquitous. That's not omnipresent. God did not assume the nature of the entire created universe. God is not hypostatically united to my golden retriever. In that mode of presence, he is uniquely present in the person of Jesus. Here's another mode of presence, transubstantiation. When the body and blood of Christ, when, more specifically, the substance of the body and blood of Christ become present for us on the altar. That is a mode of presence that is unique and distinct from every other mode of presence. That's what we're talking about being in the altar. That's what we're talking about being in the tabernacle. And that certainly doesn't undermine the mode of, of divine immensity, which, which necessarily always pertains. Well, it's been a great hour. Dr. Anders, thanks so much for being so gracious Thank with you, your Jack. time. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our celebrity producer, Mr. Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price on this special mailbag edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. You can check the show out live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. God bless. <laughs>